1: I've kind of deviated from the path of Asian-ness, of Koreanness. Um, I went into comedy. I went, I went into comedy in a, in a way that was um, very sort of different and I went into it very young. I told my mother when I was 14 I wanted to be a comedian and she said, oh maybe it's better if you just die. <laughs> <clears throat> Hello
0: and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and my guest on this week's show is the legendary comedian Margaret Cho. I have been a fan of hers for as long as I can remember dating back 25 years to her ABC sitcom All-American Girl. That was the first and only sitcom to center on an Asian-American family until Fresh Off the Boat premiere just a few years ago. Margaret is still on the road performing stand-up all over the country, and she recently launched her own podcast called The Margaret Show*, where she talks to comedian friends like former Last Laugh guest Kathy Griffin, as well as her former hairstylist and current Queer Eye co-host Jonathan Van Ness. We get into a lot of interesting territory on this episode, including Margaret's relationship with Quentin Tarantino, the anti-Asian racist slurs that got comedian Shane Gillis fired from SNL earlier this year, Dave Chappelle's controversial bit on bisexuality, and a pretty insane story about working with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage on the movie Face Off. I think this is one of our most fun episodes yet. Which ones have been your favorite? Let us know by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. But for now, let's hear me and Margaret Cho. Does Lucia have a lot of podcast experience?
1: Yes, she... um Usually, um, she, uh, will be sitting in, um, pretty much on every one, on the one that I do, mm-hmm. and also on anyone, any a guest of anybody else's, um, so, uh... She's been around media for a long time.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm so happy to have you here because I'm such a big fan of yours Thank and you. uh, I've been listening to your podcast. That's great. How long have you been doing it now? Well,
1: I uh, started it in July. However, I have been, um, I was at the very dawn of podcasting in 2012, mm. really long time ago. Um, and uh, I did a, l- a lot of episodes and it was a different kind of a game than it was much more indie and much more casual mm-hmm. and we uh just had a recorder and going all over to like um festivals um like and and interviewing uh, a lot of musicians actually for that one. Oh yeah people like Bob Mould and and uh, John Worcester my friends uh Jason Nardisi all the all the all the, uh, pretty much every member of Super Chunk and Mountain Goats and, <laughs> and uh Bob Mould band and uh Uh, Fred Armisen came in and did stuff and so you know it it was really it was very indie rock um, but it was fun and and, uh, but this is different now it's a lot more of a it's like a very lady podcast and Mm. we're in um in my house, and uh, it's it's very much, um, it's kind of like Whoopi Goldberg's old talk show.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, well I don't remember that. Remember, it was a really, before the view.
1: <laughs> it was be way before the view, and it was a, like a late night one. So instead of eleven thirty in the morning, it was eleven thirty mm. at night. Yeah, and it was kind of like um, it was her sitting down um, on a very patterned couch. Uh, with her friends, and so I, I love that. I love like a very casual, like break it down interview, like a like a Barbara Walters, mm-hmm. but even more like it gets more serious, like when people are friends. So maybe it's closer to like a, I don't know, maybe a Deborah Norville. <laughs> yeah,
0: something. you mostly have people you know on or or mix.
1: Yeah, mostly people I know. Uh, the last couple of uh, episodes, though, I have been introduced to a couple of new people that I hadn't met before, but I'm very interested in. So it's it's fun, and it's um the the basic gist of it is that you know interview people that uh, everybody knows and then people that everybody should know mm-hmm. so it's it's somebody like jonathan Van Ness who everybody knows who i i adore and yeah, from, uh, queer eye. from queer yeah. eye and also um also seen as my hairdresser and, <laughs> and other <laughs> incarnations but now he's too famous to do my hair but oh, he's, yeah.
0: he he did your hair before he did before... my hair for many years oh wow
1: and um, so you knew him when I knew him when and I had started stalking him actually on social media from seeing uh gay of thrones, which yeah. was his um, funny or die show right, wrap up right. show for Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I needed to know him. And I I made him be my hairdresser, which is a great move. And so he's a fabulous, fabulous person to interview. So people like him and then also people like uh, Robin Tran, who is a really, really funny Comedian, stand-up comedian, a writer. She's a trans woman. She's Asian American. She's very different. Yeah. So I really want people to get to know her. So lots of different types of people, um, and uh, it's it's really fun, and I'm en- enjoying it. Um, this week we have uh, Kathy Griffin. So everybody oh, knows her. Oh, that's exciting!
0: Yeah, she was on this show a few a uh, few weeks ago. Ooh, yeah. Or a she, couple months ago. Yeah, she's great. She was so much fun to talk to, and she has she's, quite a story to she's, tell. Quite,
1: quite a few stories <laughs> yeah. and uh, she and I have a long history um I known her you know since um I came to Los Angeles in 1991 mm-hmm. and I think um you know she's just got a lot to say and and somebody who's been through show business in every capacity yeah. you know and in and, and she and I and Janine Garofalo in the very early 90s used to do um Comedy in a bookstore that was on Beverly called Big and Tall Books when there were independent bookshops everywhere. Yeah. And uh, we would clear out the uh, cafe, which was upstairs, and we would. F- Force stand-up comedy on all of the hipster <laughs> uh, people trying to read and drink coffee.
0: <laughs> how did how did that go? It
1: went well most of the time. Uh, although a couple of times, it really felt like that kind of performance art where you go somewhere um, with a bunch of firecrackers around your neck like a lay mm-hmm. and light them. <laughs> um, you couldn't do that now, by the way, with the firecrackers. People would really panic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, was so. What else do you remember from those uh, those sort of early days when you first came to, to LA to I, do? Stand I remember
1: up? that we would be out all night, um, and I mean, I don't know where we got all the energy. In the early '90s, there was like this crazy thing where um, Janine would take us. Janine was sort of the leader. Mm -hmm. and so we would follow her wherever she went we would follow her little doc martens as they her little (laughs) size four doc martens as they would stomp down la brea and we would go to ministry which was another coffee house see we would just go to the coffee houses Mm -hmm. which had old pastries and um very strong coffee so that's probably why we never uh slept yeah and we would smoke cigarettes and you could smoke inside of the coffee houses then this is so gross in the 90s (laughs) and um at midnight, we would go and we would meet uh, Judd Apatow and Ben Stiller and Colin Quinn oh, and wow. Bob Odenkirk at Ministry, which was a, um, a coffee house where Meshuggah is now, which is the kosher sushi mm. place on La Brea. And we would meet them at midnight and they would be writing uh, what would become the Ben Stiller show mm-hmm. on Fox. Um, but uh, the, at that time... I didn't really know what they were doing. They were just the boys are doing something stupid and I don't care. <laughs> and so we would uh, sit down and write. Um, I didn't actually write anything for that, but I would be drawing pictures or sketches mm-hmm. in my book, um, which I have still, some, maybe some of the guys. But um, that was like the very dawn of like independent early indie comedy yeah. from which came a, a fountain of. Of many things, of course, the, all of these these people we know from different areas. Oh, mm-hmm. and David Cross and Bob Odenkirk would be there, also working on uh, an early version of Mister Show.
0: Yeah, I remember, I was listening to one of your podcast episodes where you were talking about the the alternative scene versus the club comic mm-hmm. scene in that yes. time. Where did you Where do you feel like you fell into that, or were you able to kind of straddle both uh, yes. worlds?
1: I was a rare breed of comedian who could somehow manage to talk my way into both worlds. And there were not that many of us. I think that there was me, maybe Patton Oswalt, um, and uh, a few others where we were welcome in stand-up comedy clubs, very traditional, like the Improvs and all of the chains, and then also welcome in the alternative spaces like uh, Luna Park or Largo Mm -hmm. or even Onyx or um, Pedro's. You know, all of these places that were kind of on the east side that uh, the farthest west we would ever venture would be uh, Largo, and even that was on Fairfax. We mm-hmm. would never go as far as La Brea. Yeah. I mean, no, no, La, La Cienega. Yeah, La yeah. Cienega would be like, that's like basically the horizon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and you've been touring a lot now uh, doing mm-hmm. stand-up too, so how's yeah. the how's the current tour going? I
1: love it. You know, I love that I get to still do comedy and travel all over the place, and for me it's just it, it's just really gratifying. I mean, I think that it's a lifestyle that I've always, had i've been a comedian since i was 14 so you know it's a sort of thing of like we all wanted to run away and join the circus and this is like kind of the closest proximity to it where you're not um practicing cruelty towards animals
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so you started when you were 14 yeah how did that work
1: i had a uh, a comedy class that i was in in high school and also a teacher who was highly inappropriate now that I look back but she was signing us up for open mic nights at the other cafe which was a very famous comedy club in San Francisco which had shows um, during the week you would see Paula Poundstone or Dana Carvey Mm -hmm. um, Bobcat Goldthwait um, lots of people and then um also, they had these open mic nights and they would sign us up. My, my teacher would sign us up and we would go. Um, and so I would do these sketches with at that time. I was a comedy duo with Sam Rockwell, who is a really very famous actor now. Yeah. Um, but very funny, too. He's very funny. And uh, he is um, he, he's really talented in many different ways. But he uh, ended up not staying in San Francisco. He went to move to New York with his mom. So I stayed in San Francisco, and I stayed with it. There was a comedy club above my parents' bookstore where I worked, Mm -hmm. and so I was able to go up there and do sets. At that comedy club, they would sell tomatoes in the front that you could throw at the performers, (laughs) which, um, you know, this is like the mid-'80s to Mm late-'80s. There was a kind of... um, I don't know what, it was almost like a vaudeville style of performance where there were a lot of character comedians, something like Emo Phillips and Judy yeah. Tenuta and uh, and Bobcat. Bobcat, of course, has transitioned yeah. to different kinds of comedy, but mm-hmm. there was this kind of heavy sort of very performative character-based comedy. Polly Shore kind of yeah. got, comes under is that. Is that
0: is that what you were doing? Is that how you would describe what you were doing?
1: No, but I think that kind of comedy mm-hmm. did um, lend itself to a performative audience, like mm-hmm. some audience that feels justified in throwing things. Yeah. So there, there was a kind of like a rejection of the way that we look at performance, and a new breed of performance that was really punk rock. And so yeah. you could sort of do anything, be anything. You could be underage in a club, you could be like Gigi Allen, and throwing feces. Mm. You know, so it was like a very anarchic time, uh, kind of a little bit before grunge, where anything was possible.
0: So how would you describe what your act was like in those really early days?
1: At that time, I was probably like. Um, I don't know. It was real young Sheldon. Like it was like weird, <laughs> like a child,
0: Doogie, like a weird, Doogie Howser, like yeah. a weird
1: Doogie Howser. It was very much like a child with the with the lab coat and like a, a stethoscope. Yeah. Like it was like, why is this child here? And yet, you know, I I really fell in love with the art form of it. I I I was very safe in comedy, um, just because it it was a, a world where people were inclined to try to take care of me you know when i had people who were very supportive like jerry seinfeld or brett butler mm-hmm. who were incredibly um just very supportive and very uh willing to give me opportunities and help me out um and so you know i i, I really thrived in that community and mm-hmm. then i got to be on star search international oh yeah and uh, the young uh comedian special that was a uh, big bob hope's big thing mm-hmm. big to do every every sort of christmas Um, so there was a a bunch of things that happened that I I was able to kind of, uh, be in comedy full time and then I wasn't in school and I just, I just kept going on the road.
0: Yeah. I mean, you ended up opening for Jerry Seinfeld, right? Yeah. What do you remember from that experience? I
1: was in a a competition where it was like for the funniest college student in America and, um, there were the finalists, which was myself for the West Coast and John Glazer from the Midwest. And then there was, um... Red Johnny and the Round Guy, who were a uh, uh, sort of... Um, they were a comedy rap duo. Mm. And so uh, we all won. and We were all given the opportunity to open for Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry was very, very generous to me. And he said that I had a good good perspective and a, and a unique perspective and that I would do well in comedy should I choose to follow that path in life, which I did, which is great. Mm-hmm. So he is a, a marvelous guy and, and definitely helped me feel confident. But... Um, It that was really incredible, and he so he did a show. Um, it was the Seinfeld Diaries had just started on uh, or
0: the the Seinfeld Chronicles, or or yeah, yeah, I think something, I
1: think something like that. Yeah, it was like the early,
0: early Seinfeld, the very
1: early Seinfeld. So it was like in maybe their first season, Mm -hmm. in between first and second season, or something like that, where before it turned into just Seinfeld, and um. So it was very, uh, it was all very new, this idea of comedians being on television mm-hmm. and doing sitcoms. And so, um, and of course, that led to, uh, of course, Roseanne and, and um, Tim Allen and, and, and quite a few comedians who were headlining their own uh, sitcoms
0: including you. Yes.
1: So it was like a it was a good time to be in comedy although I was it was weird because my comedy was very uh geared towards um nightclub comedy and mm-hmm. I think I was much more raunchy because I was trying to convince audiences that I was older than I was.
0: Oh yeah. And so
1: my comedy was like really kind of blue and you know appropriate on my comedy specials on HBO and things like that but when you were But when you're hired by Disney, as they kind of, you know, brought me into their fold and tried to make a show for me, it was really a strange thing. Like it was like they were trying to make... Mm, you know, a, a, a pickle into a cucumber. <laughs> yeah.
0: How, how did that happen that they, that you got connected with, with ABC and, and Disney and they, they decided to make the All-American Girl?
1: Well, ultimately, the, the whole thing was they offered the most money. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's an easy decision to make mm-hmm. if you're young and you don't, I didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. Now, if I look back and I go, oh, I should have made a deal with HBO. Right. And had a show that like your lead-in could have been Arliss mm-hmm. or Dream On. Yeah. You know, and then it would have been more of an appropriate thing. But I I didn't know. Like, I I didn't really know. And I had a lot of people who were um, working with me who were just like, just let's get the money yeah. You know, and I just didn't really get it, but you know, I learned.
0: Yeah. Well, you ended up on this lineup with all these, um, you know, great female comics, uh, mm-hmm. Roseanne and mm-hmm. Ellen mm-hmm. and Brett Butler. He right. mentioned. Yeah. Um, so there was, I mean, there was something happening there. Yes. Um, and those, you know, shows were were great as well in their time. Um, but so when you so when you started making the show, were there a lot of were there things that you wanted to do with it that ABC Disney just said, you know, no, that's not going to yeah.
1: work. Yeah, I mean, we would have like vibrator jokes in <laughs> yeah. there and they would have to be cut. And it mm-hmm. was really it was devastating kind of. But but because the show was like an 830 show, eight mm-hmm. o'clock show, it was really hard. If you if you went into the nine o'clock hour, then you had Roseanne and you had Ellen yeah. and you had much more leeway to do a lot more. Also, they were adults. Mm-hmm. And I was still... Even though I was in my 20s, I was still considered like a child in the way that the show is framed. I'm in the family yeah, that's home. it's a very
0: family kind of show. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, And also the, the fact that we were Asian American, there was a, a sort of a thing of like there was this need to sort of steer it toward a safer territory mm-hmm. because they were maybe being so outrageous that we were racially different. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's a um, crazy kind of justification, but it's not it's I think it's all underneath like these things that they, they the decisions that were making they were making were kind of like underneath everything mm-hmm. so it was weird um but there was there was something that happened in the uh show that kind of changed everything which was um I think it was Frank Wells he was like the <laughs> he died mm-hmm. like in the beginning of our run and so we had to move everything to another studio which kind of so that they could use our studio for his funeral and it was a very oh, strange really? thing so that there was all of this like weird like movement around the show that kind of kind of led to our our uh, kind of feeling un at ease disease mm-hmm.
0: when you i mean when you think about when you think back to it now and it's been what 20, 25 f- 25 years yeah, yeah. yeah i mean how do you how do you think about that time or do you think about oh i wish i had done something differently or or what what are your thoughts um, about it now oh,
1: God, I think that it's really like I um, I, I should have, well, I mean, my main thing is I should have gone and made a deal with uh, a network that I've really understood my mm-hmm. point of view, so that would have been HBO or yeah, whoever. Yeah. Um, that is the main regret. But other than that, it's it's really like, well, you know what happened the way it should have happened. I should have handled things a little bit better, but I also didn't know who I was as a performer. I didn't really understand who I was as an, art, as an artist and mm-hmm. actually... Being canceled helped me really become the stand-up comedian that I was supposed to be. Yeah. So I became a better comedian for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I had 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 that early success as a television personality, I may not have felt the need to go back and develop as a stand-up mm-hmm. comedian
0: yeah. I mean, I maybe I could be wrong, but looking at like the credits for the show, you're not credited as a, a writer or no. a producer, no. which seemed odd to me yeah. considering yeah. thinking something about like Seinfeld right. and they were all, you know, producing, writing mm-hmm. their shows. So I mean, what what was that about? And where is that um, you know how how did that kind of come to be? And, and how do you feel about it?
1: I just didn't know, and also like I was so terrified of the responsibility of having all of this on me. I sort of thought, well, if I am not a producer, maybe it mm-hmm. wouldn't be so much. Like I could take some of this load off. Yeah. You know that if I am not a writer, which I never was, they never opened that door for me anyway. I would have mm-hmm. had to force that open yeah. if it if it if at all. You know, so it like. Um, it just didn't occur to me because I just didn't know, and also, yeah. like I didn't know anybody in show business who had been through this, and I didn't know any other Asian American comedians that mm-hmm. I could ask about <laughs>
0: there weren't very there weren't many of them
1: <laughs> no, and so it was like I just I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that I would have asked. Maybe um, just had a different perspective on it, and Mm. they had more agency. You know, somebody like Ellen had a lot more agency coming into this because she had been a very, very prominent stand-up comedian for many years at Mm -hmm. that point. And I was opening for her, so to me, it was like I just didn't have the knowledge or capacity to understand. Like I should demand that Mm -hmm. Um, because I just didn't know. Yeah, but uh, of course, now I know.
0: What's the story behind the Quentin Tarantino episode of uh, all- American Girl
1: well Quentin and I um, have been dating we uh, I dated him in between um, the like probably the the craziest time for him which was in between reservoir dogs and pulp fiction yeah and uh, so we were um he was always around like he was always around like he he would be there and, and you know he um i don't know if he had suggested it we had suggested it i'm not sure how it came about but he wanted to, to be on the show he loves sitcoms we had also, also mm-hmm. both done golden palace not together but we had done episodes of it's the the golden girl spinoff he played um an elvis impersonator oh yeah so he uh was he's very appreciative of the multicam genre mm-hmm. and so he really wanted to be a part of it i mean you know when and, and at that time like we were hanging out all the time like he um had just bought out the inventory of video archives which is his old job at the video store mm-hmm. and he had 8000 movies on VHS and DVD oh, wow. and he had a special TV that letterboxed everything. It didn't even ask you <laughs> like everything was letterboxed from, you know, all of these like old movies we, should, we would watch at, up to family ties was letterboxed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we were just together a lot and, and, um, hanging out. And, uh, so, you know, the writers pitched it and we did an episode that was all about, uh, kind of following the, um, maybe the, the pattern of, uh, Pulp Fiction and um, had a lot of a lot of fun and um, we you know they spent a lot on the episode and it sort of became this very big thing and um, you know I I, I'm really appreciative that we have that it's so 90s yeah it's like the most 90s thing (laughs) ever Desmond I don't like the idea of having to visit my boyfriend in some prison where he ends up getting his lungs cut out by some hard timer with a homemade chip (laughs) I'm your boyfriend yeah, I guess you are, which is why I don't like this. Look, it's not that
0: big of a deal. Nobody gets hurt by what I do.
1: But it's illegal. You're trying to tell me you've never photocopied
0: sheet music or made your own tape from some album? Well, yeah, but that's well, not... Well, that's all I do, all right? Except I do it on a much bigger scale. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I, I uh, yeah, I appreciated him, and, and we had a good time on that mm-hmm. episode.
0: And then I was reading that sort of the way that the show ended was they were kind of there was talks about kind of turning it into a different kind of show like like more of like a friends kind of show yeah so what happened there i mean is that something that you would have wanted to do and it didn't work out or is that was that was their idea or
1: yeah it was many people trying to figure out why or how we're going to make this work like okay i i think it was more like we're going to try to make this show more adult as opposed to like a family show Mm -hmm. because they realized that impulse was wrong that they should have framed yeah. me in more it of It's more of your context. sensibility too yeah so that we were trying to do that I think that it you know I was just all for trying to shift it and make it into something better um and something that we could live with live in and so in that that was actually a fun episode in in itself it was almost like a pilot mm-hmm. um to do something different and uh the the but the the problem with it was it just didn't It it was almost too little too late, like we're trying to like fix a problem we should have dealt with in the beginning. Um, So, you know, I understand it was also there was a big backlash from the Korean community because at that time, the L.A. riots just happened and Mm. they were very controlling over their public persona. And they didn't like me because I was a woman. I was such a really, really raunchy comedian. And, you know, I I didn't um, want they didn't want me as a representative. So that was a very mm. uh, difficult thing that happened, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, how did that feel? Because you're out here, you know, it's like the first, one of the first or the yeah. first, depending on you know what, you, what, what you're looking at, the sitcom starring yeah. Asian American Family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to have the Korean American community kind of, you know, have that response, how did that feel? It was
1: terrible. And I was so angry. And I would confront them personally on it. Like, I would call all these ministers of churches who were like threatening to protest. And I was like, what? I would call them at home mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> yeah. On the, like a, a landline that we had <laughs> from my house um, by my coffee table. And I uh, would ask them about it. And, you know, they would get really angry. I was calling like this reporter at the LA Times who was like at the metro section. She covered all the crime in Koreatown. And she had moved over to entertainment for one thing so that she could do this whole, uh, Exposé about mm-hmm. how this wasn't a really really Korean show and it was like so crazy. And so I had all these arguments with people and um, But fortunately they, they all died <laughs> and so now I'm the I'm the old one now Which is great because I'm the, the establishment in terms of like Korean comedians or comedians of uh, Asian American mm-hmm. comedians all sort of cite me as an influence which is the best part yeah. of it so but it is it is something like, it is like a generational thing and it's also like the old um, kind of immigrant mindset and, and it's very patriarchal culture that Koreans are, you know, that's it's hard, it's hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, your, your show got a lot of attention again a few years ago when Fresh Off the Boat came mm-hmm. on because they were saying, you know, this is the first since All-American yeah. Girl and that show's had its own backlash issues in some ways too or, or you know, controversies. Um, do you,
1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Just the fact that it was it was it frustrating to you that it was the first one since, since yeah, yours? Yeah, it should
1: not have taken 24, 25, 23 years yeah. for them to do it again. Although um, I am friendly with everybody over there mm-hmm. um, even uh, well I was familiar with the show from Eddie Huang's um, bio mm-hmm. from his, uh, per, his biography that it's based on and um, so I was talking to him about it when they were first approaching the the show being made and and um, how all of his his issues and 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 dealing with it and then he had, he eventually left the show and um, you know I I love Randall I love I love Constance they're all great over there and they've done a great job I think it's it's a really it's a great time for it I actually appear in the first season mm-hmm. um, they're watching me on television which I think <laughs> is a great thing yeah, and that's I a
0: good tribute
1: yeah I'm really proud of them and I'm really excited that the show has had such a great long life. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, all of these stars have emerged from it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there does it does feel like there are more opportunities for Asian-American, mm-hmm. yeah. especially in comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, with Crazy Rich Asians yeah. obviously got a lot of attention for that. Do you do you see that, um, you know, the that there is does it feel different now than than when you were starting?
1: I think so. I mean, I hope so. But the thing is, is that when I was starting that the you know, my TV show and the Joy Luck Club came out at the same time and there was all of this talk about now we're going to actually look towards Asian-Americans mm-hmm. and this, this being a thing in television and movies and it didn't happen. Yeah, And so I'm I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more and I have seen some more, but uh, I, I think that the, there's still some way to go in terms of diversity, but I'm very grateful that we have um, stars like Aquafina, Ken Jeong, um, Randall, of course, Constance, yeah. who are, are out there and doing great so it's really i mean that's meaningful
0: yeah ali wong too has, has yeah become she's amazing huge and yeah she's
1: great she's actually incredible and her comedy specials um the last two like, uh, that the first time i've seen an asian american woman do a comedy special and that's yeah that's really significant i mean because i i don't know any other ones so mm-hmm. that that was really really great uh, yeah oh my goodness sorry <laughs> it's okay Lucia.
0: Coming up, Margaret weighs in on the anti-Asian slurs that got comedian Shane Gillis fired from SNL. This episode of The Last Laugh is brought to you by Skylight Frame. The holidays are just around the corner. How's your holiday shopping going? I know it's not always easy to find the perfect gift for the people in your life. That's why I want you to check out Skylight Frame. Skylight Frame is a photo frame you can update instantly by email from anywhere. It sets up effortlessly in under 60 seconds. Just plug in, use the touchscreen to connect your wireless network, and enjoy. Sending photos to Skylight is effortless. Everyone in the family can just email them to your personal Skylight email address, and they'll pop up in seconds. It's great for keeping the family close and connected, especially those who live far away. It has a black frame and white mat, so it looks like a real photo frame that adds a beautiful touch to your home. Skylight Frame has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen. You can swipe through photos with your finger and even tap to thank the person who sent the photo. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll offer you a full refund. You can preload it with your favorite photos for a personalized gift. Import pictures of you and the special person in your life that they didn't even know you had. I'm already planning to get a Skylight Frame for my parents this holiday season, and if you want to do the same, I've got a discount code just for you. Now, as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter code LAFF. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter code LAFF. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com, promo code LAFF. And then uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Saturday Night Live... Uh, cast the first Asian American yeah. actor Bowen, Bowen Yang, which is also it was insane to me that it, that this is that he's the first you I know, know on the show I in know forty five years that it's been on
1: it's crazy I mean I think um, Rob Schneider's half Filipino mm-hmm. um, but yeah that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. But yeah, he and Bowen's great. Bowen's a friend of mine and he's so talented. He did a great job. He did a great job on Weekend Update.
0: Yeah, I he saw was that, yeah. so
1: funny. Mm-hmm. And it's just great because he's so him, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's really it's really powerful. And I think that they did a good they did a good thing hiring him. He mm-hmm. had been on the show actually before. Um, for a while as yeah. a writer. So it's great to see him on camera.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, it was coupled with this sort of horrible saga of the other actor, that the comedian yeah. that they hired, Shane Gillis, yeah. who we quickly found out was uh, <laughs> had a lot of problematic things in his yeah. act. What was your response to that? Because there was kind of a divide you know I saw a lot of Asian American comedians who were outraged by what the the some of the stuff that he said yeah. I saw a lot of other comedians who were kind of defending comedians right to say whatever they want so it was interesting yeah. conversation I mean it is. what was your reaction to that
1: Well I mean it's not for me but I I mean I I think that uh, comedians who take risks are, are really important, and and if their definition of risk is racism, then <laughs> let that be it. you know I think that yeah. it's, it's sad that um, comedians think that being edgy is is about being racist. But yeah. you know if they want to define it that way, that's totally fine. you mm. know it's just, it's just like comedians like to be challenged by the status quo, and they're going to overstep that's the nature of comedy. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to do it at some point. And it's sort of the, the degree of in which we do it is, is, you know, kind of like, it's not up to us and it's not up to, it's sort of that sort of society to decide. And, um, You know, I think that he'll be fine because what's great is that he's got a lot of exposure for people who like that kind of comedy can (laughs) go find it. And that's really big. So he's got a big boost. Yeah, that's That's what I thought.
0: I think the whole thing may have helped him more than it than it hurt him. Yeah. And I'm not sure he would have done well on on SNL in that environment. You know,
1: Mm, you know, you know, who knows? But it's it's really I think that it it you know, it did a good. It did good by him then that people who like that kind of comedy can go seek him out. He's got a lot to say now about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because there's a there's a big market of comedians out there who or a big market of an audience members who just they had they want to see it their way Mm -hmm. and they want it to go back to the way it was. (laughs) Yeah. So you you know they there is an audience out there for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you had to deal with any of of that in in your career in terms of uh, offending people or or getting people upset about stuff? And, and how I do you and how do you handle it when I don't when know? It happens?
1: Well, I think that it's like it, you know I feel um, I feel a little bit like uh, well I think that these kinds of things help. Uh, ultimately, language helps us understand how to be a better society. And I think that it is good, you know, that cancel culture, a lot of it is really good, mm-hmm. you know? And then when you're victimized by it, you know, maybe we need to learn to do better. So I don't know. Like, I feel, um, you know, it is it is more about, like, relying on your skill as a comedian and kind of as an, an ambassador of goodwill. Like, I think comedians are just, we're here to do good work. We're mm-hmm. just here to be funny. So hopefully... Um, we don't overstep too much, but uh, that you can survive within it is really a test of your ability.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the other the other bit that I was thinking about um, is uh, there's a lot been a lot of talk about Dave Chappelle uh, mm-hmm. and his recent special. I don't know if mm-hmm. did you see his his mm-hmm. most recent yeah. special? Yeah. So I mean, one bit that maybe has gotten less attention is um, his riff on uh, bisexuality. Mm-hmm. If
1: it's one thing that the L's and the G's agree on is that the Bs are fucking gross. (laughs) They seem greedy to the Ls and the Gs, you know what I mean? They're just sitting in the backseat like, yeah, man, I'll fuck anybody in this car. What's going on, man?
0: So when you see something like that, I mean, on the one hand, you know, comedians should be able to say whatever they want. But how do you how do you take that when you see that?
1: But I think that there is like but that that his it's his truth. Like and I believe that there there is like a hidden truth in there. I think there is a lot of um, prejudice against the bisexual community, mm-hmm. it, it, even within the LGBTQIA community, mm-hmm. because there's that thing of there's about bisexuality is sometimes it's an identity that we claim when we're not ready to be. Fully be who we are
0: mm-hmm. that
1: that is um sometimes people's prejudice towards it because it's assumed that it's a lie yeah. also it's assumed that it's um it's convenient that we can choose, and then it sort of justifies this idea that being gay is a choice, which is something that's been used against us mm-hmm. for so long so there's a lot of biases that are hard to put words to mm-hmm. because it it kind of lends itself to your own homophobia. That exists within the queerness that I am. You know, I I, exe- I I I I really try to like exempt myself from homophobia, but I I realize like when it exists within me and when it exists my in my own being towards other bisexuals, mm-hmm. I tend to not believe it, and I tend to think like, well, this is wrong, and 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 they're wrong, and they don't really know who they are, and and so it's it's something that I can I welcome the criticism because I've already been through it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's hard. It's yeah. weird. But yeah, so it's, it's yeah. the one part of the gay community that we're kind of like, eh, I think they could they feel like they could do without us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you felt that almost like uh, homophobia from the gay community for yeah, being bi?
1: Yeah, totally internalized homophobia that is very hard to uh, really, you know, recognize. But you have to kind of go, well, I, I, I see it and I know it. And um I don't think there's ever going to be a time that I'm going to walk away from being bisexual. I don't think that there will be a time that I identify solely as a lesbian or solely as heterosexual. But I also don't think that there's two genders. So I think that bisexual mm-hmm. has a there's inherently problems with their, their thinking that, you know, that we are binary. Mm-hmm. None of us are there. There's no real such thing. Everybody has mm-hmm. degrees of gender. So um, there's a lot of problems with the B.
0: Coming up, Margaret addresses the backlash she received after playing an exaggerated North Korean character at the Golden Globes opposite Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. This episode of The Last Laugh is brought to you by my favorite CBD gum, Euphoric. The entire CBD industry is talking about this innovative, patented, hemp oil-infused chewing gum. What makes Euphoric so special? Euphoric hemp oil-infused chewing gum is not your average gum. In fact, it's an innovative, patented delivery system. What makes the gum so innovative? Euphoric combines powerful chewing benefits with the heavily researched benefits of full-spectrum hemp oil, which is rich in naturally occurring phytocannabinoids, including CBD. As a chewing gum, Euphoric brings more innovation with its patented delivery system that allows all the action to happen in the mouth. The long-lasting mint flavor and the consistency make it possible to chew it longer, which increases absorption in the mouth. In fact, euphoric hemp oil-infused chewing gum has the best absorption rate on the market, 84%. This is 50% greater than other products that must be digested. Want to see what all the euphoric fuss is about? Right now, our listeners get free shipping with their order when you visit lovethisgum.com. This is a special podcast exclusive, and when you support our sponsors, you support our show. Just go to lovethisgum.com to get free shipping, plus an additional bonus discount on select offers. That's lovethisgum.com. So what I want to do now is uh, kind of a speed round going through some of the um, things that you've done that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet. And if there's sort of a a memory or a story that jumps out um, to you. Um, so the first is your first late night stand up performance, which you can do. You, do you remember what it was?
1: Yes. Um, it was, uh, the Dennis Miller show oh, okay. when he was liberal. <laughs> yeah. He used to be, he was always kind of libertarian. I used libertarian. to like that show. I liked the show
0: a Was it, I watched Dennis Miller live. Was it that or there was the one before that?
1: It was the one before yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the one that was kind of like, um, Letterman or like, mm-hmm. it was the one that was more fashion towards like that. Like it, and I, I think I've also I also did the very first John Stewart show. Oh yeah. which was on MTV. Mm-hmm. Um which was very much that kind of like not a daily show behind mm-hmm. a desk. It was sitting yeah, like yeah. with like performers and you know buffalo tom was on
0: yeah Things so like what that. do you what do you remember about the the dennis miller performance
1: um i remember that i when i auditioned i bombed and it was a full house and i bombed so bad but he was in the back he was the only one laughing <laughs> and he has a
0: very distinct laugh yeah, you could hear, yeah.
1: but he was really really laughing um and uh i got the show from that mm-hmm. and um i remember that i had on a suit which is so weird to think about Uh, Betsy Johnson suit um this is the 90s and I was so excited um then uh yeah so that but that that was like the first thing I think I did that show twice because I think I did it once and then I was back like the next week so sometimes you would get in that thing where you would be a comedian that was on kind of like a call like they would call you if somebody dropped out Mm, yeah so that I was that for that show once, and then also about ten or twelve times for Arsenio Hall. Yeah, yeah. So that was the main show that I did probably the most yeah. of my my late night comedy shows on.
0: What do you think happened to Dennis Miller?
1: You know, I think that he, um, I think that he just really kind of you know sometimes libertarians they can become very conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, libertarianism I think it, there is because they're free to go anywhere and make yeah. their own decisions they they do sometimes go to this place of far right yeah which um, maybe that's what happened to him I have a hard time believing that yeah. I think he's a smart guy and I yeah. I really don't understand I, I you know I always respected him as a comedian and liked him very much personally but um, the fact that he's conservative it's just odd to me
0: yeah, definitely.
1: You know, because com- comedians, you think they're mostly a liberal crew. Yeah, I mean, there's, even there's very few
0: conservative comedians. There's a handful, but not not too many.
1: Yeah, and they're always like guys that you're like, are they really comedians? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, like Glenn Beck.
0: No, are, I'm like, I is don't that... think he counts as a comedian. Yeah,
1: I mean, th- there's there is some sort of element of mirth
0: mm-hmm. around. Yeah.
1: What they do, but I, I, I can't really see. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think of comedy as being a very liberal form, but I don't mm-hmm. know.
0: Um, so one of your earliest uh, movie roles was in Face Off, yes. which is a classic. Yes. Um, do you have any good uh, Nicholas Cage and or John Travolta stories? Um,
1: John Travolta and I, uh, were, he, I would go and eat lunch in his trailer, and one time he ate an entire boysenberry pie, a nine inch boysenberry <laughs> pie with a fork. He didn't even cut it in slices. Wow. Ate the whole pie. This is following a beef Wellington. Um, So I actually would be doing that same kind of eating. It's like when being in his presence is like being in the presence of a king. Yeah. So you do want to do what he does. And so I ate so much that they had to put an elasticized panel in the back of my, my suit that I wore because... This, the film takes place over a very short period of time. right? So it's like a few days, actually, mm-hmm. not a long period of time. So I had to wear the same thing every day, but I had to have them cut a fat panel in that they put elastic in the back. <laughs> because
0: you were just spending too much time with John Travolta. And
1: eating. Um, and and half of the movie, Nicolas Cage was in character, so he really hated us because we were all in the FBI. So right. if you're in a movie with Nicolas Cage and you're like not on his side, mm-hmm. then he's really shitty to you because he's in character. So half of it, he was really shitty to me. And then you know he was kind of mean anyway, but I think it was because of the character. Yeah. So um, he really yelled at me uh, in one scene, but we were like, <laughs> like we were, he he's supposed to like collapse and dead or not or almost dead, and mm-hmm. and, and and he was really he was it was weird, but um, he was very angry most of it. But I think that was a character based. What did decision.
0: he yell at you about?
1: I think I, I I said something wrong or I said the line wrong or something to that effect but he was in character so it was kind of like he was just lashing out Mm. as uh his character in it which i think is i think it's okay yeah i don't mind
0: um one of my favorite performances of yours was as uh kim jong-il in 30 rock uh, which you did a bunch of times
1: Yeah, and in food news you've had enough to eat today now here with the weather is Johnny Mountain North Korea. Everything's sunny all the time, always good time beach party. Back to you, Um, How did that? Uh,
0: how did that come about? And then, and what do you remember from from that?
1: Um, Tina Fey just asked me, and I was so excited to be a part of it. And I just went in. And when you do that show, well, that show was so everybody on the show was so hugely famous. So a lot of the time. You were working with their body double. Like they were, oh, really? uh, well, especially Tracy Morgan. He mm-hmm. had um, a lot. So a lot of the scenes that I did with him had um, his body double in place. And then he would shoot his side with right. you. And then, and then uh, the same thing with Alec Baldwin. But Tina, of course, uh, is so hands on with that show. So she was there um, with my scenes with her for everything. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time, when. It, I wasn't in scenes with her, she would be there. So there was a lot of, um, her input, of course, but, you know, it was sort of different when I was shooting with, with Tracy or, or Alec. And then, um, you know, again, it's like, uh, it's a very famous show, but uh, the, the part about that is they didn't do a lot of shooting on the street, like Sex and yeah, the City. Yeah, it was mostly
0: a studio, right? Yeah, yeah. So
1: you, you were sort of enclosed in, so you didn't really see anybody, but, um... It was really cool.
0: Yeah, it was, I remember when it, it came, when the first time it happened, I feel like people were like, not sure if it was you at first. Or yeah, like, yeah, it was, yeah. It was kind of a fun thing fun. to figure out. Yeah. Um, and then you did a bit with, was it with Tina and Amy on yeah. uh, the Golden Globes? Yes.
1: Cho Young-ja wanted to come up here with us. Um, are you Are you enjoying the show so far? No, what? You don't think it's fun to see all these big movie stars and like crazy eyes and Princess? It's a fun show. In North Korea, we know how to put on a show. This is not a show. No. You don't know, have a thousand babies playing guitar at the same time. You don't know, have people holding up many cards to make one big picture. You don't know, have Dennis Rodman. No basketball at all. all right. Someone, someone dropped the ball on Robin. You're right. We'll get on that. Right. We'll get right on that. Also, I think that Orange is the New Black should be in drama category. You know, okay. It's, okay. it's funny, but not haha fun. Okay.
0: So that was that became like a big thing too. <laughs> what do you? What It was you, a really
1: weird thing. Um, well, it was funny because it was with. Um, was Meryl Streep and Benedict Cumberbatch, and I was mm-hmm. I was like holding, I was like trying to get a picture with Meryl yeah. for Insta, and I was holding up this like thing with her, and so she gave me a kiss, and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, like he phone pho- like photobombed us, and then right behind us was Harvey Weinstein, probably his very oh, last. Wow golden clubs
0: <laughs> yeah he's in the <laughs> he was, is he in the picture behind he you
1: the, he, he, he i think he's not in the picture but he was right there yeah. and right behind him was prince
0: oh wow so it
1: was like this very kind of ominous the last what a golden, <laughs> golden Globes that you saw these people <laughs> at um i was too nervous to uh speak to prince eric gurian who is um really he's he's one of uh, tina's main writer guys, he was there, and he asked Prince to come to our party, our after oh, party. nice. And he did? And, and uh, he, I think he did show up later than I, I, I left, mm-hmm. but uh, Prince showed up after.
0: Yeah. And I know that that appearance kind of caused a lot of online discussion. Yeah. How did you take that? Or what was your kind of take well, on it?
1: Well, again, it was kind of like, I think it was the, the early, early days for cancel culture. Right. So probably I would have been canceled if they had known to put words <laughs> to it. But we didn't. We hadn't codified cancellation yeah. yet, so we. You didn't got
0: in know. right under the under I the wire. I got right
1: in under like before <laughs> cancellation became a thing. But then it, I didn't understand because I am Korean. Mm-hmm. They're like, how yeah. could you portray a Korean? I don't know. <laughs> it was like a very weird. And It was mostly white people, which is kind of sad. Yeah. So I think it's like. Uh, it doesn't help us, like cancel culture doesn't help us or um political correctness doesn't help us when it serves to try to um intimidate uh you into invisibility. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's 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 a there's a thing if like an Asian person is doing an Asian character, the accent is acceptable, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like if if it's who you are, then it's kind of okay. But it's very weird when people are very agitated about it Mm -hmm. you know but uh, I had fun
0: Um, another more recent performance of yours that I loved was on high maintenance oh yeah um, which felt like a really different kind of thing for you Um, just like because that shows kind of ultra realism and very down and dirty kind of thing so cool so was that fun to do
1: I loved it I loved it I love that show and I love like it it's really like its message and its spirit and the way to shoot it it's very it's it's really beautiful. Like it's really, um, it's the closest thing that we have to like, you know, Ingmar Bergman. Like it's like yeah. a serious. Like it's like this very European like filmmaking style. That's really. I mean, it, it is uh, like cinema verite. Mm-hmm.
0: Were you a fan of the show before yeah. you before you went on? Yeah, yeah,
1: I love it, and I love. I just love their spirit. I love them. I think they're so good. You know, it, it's just. It's a really great show to be on, and I, I had such a fun time on it.
0: And I think that the last one we have to end on is uh, The mass Singer, of course, oh, yes, um, yes. which obviously is huge. So huge. Um, why, did you, why did you want to do that, and what did you get out of the experience?
1: Well, I love singing, and it looked fun to me. And, oh, they give you a lot of money. So it's like <laughs> all of the things that I love— um, but
0: except then you have to be in this poodle costume. Yeah, and that, was that part of uh, it's kind hard? of
1: hot. But then also, I love the costume; is so pretty. Yeah. So that that part I loved. I wish they let me keep it, but I couldn't. I guess it's <laughs> going to be in some kind of big museum where they Ooh. put all the masks somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of a theme restaurant maybe. But I uh, I had a great time. I mm-hmm. thought it was really cool. Um, you get to work with some amazing vocal coaches and amazing like choreographers and mm-hmm. costumers and. Um, you know, I was really nervous because I play uh, Ken Jeong's sister on his TV show. Yeah. So I thought he was going to know because he's been like working with me. I've been working with him since like, like n- he, you know, 25 years or maybe more. He opened for me on like just, like shows on the road as a comedian 25 years ago Yeah. when he was in med school. But he had no idea. He didn't know. But I think like that was really, I was like, how could you not know? It's like me, but <laughs> he didn't know. So that was, I, I kind of got in. I was lucky there, but it was a, it was so fun. Yeah. I loved it. And I really love, I I think I love, I don't know who, who I love now. I like the, the butterfly a lot Mm. Than this season. (laughs) It's very Um, cool.
0: So we end every episode by asking comedians, what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? You can think of it as kind of a a recommendation of something you saw on TV or a performer you saw live or Um, just anything that, that really made you laugh. I
1: love like when Bill, Hader was on SNL I just watched this the other day Rewatched it, is when he does um Stefan yeah. like with the fall recommendations of what <laughs> to see I love all of the Dateline Bill Hader's anything he does with the Dateline people yeah. it's really funny he's so funny he's great
0: alright well thank you so much for coming in and doing this thank today thank you All right. Thanks again to Margaret Cho. You can find her tour dates at margaretcho.com and subscribe to The Margaret Cho Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It's produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and edited by Mackenzie Mazell. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.